being open about how we still struggle with things like imposter syndrome. Um, I think that that's very helpful. Welcome to the Ad Tech Heroes podcast. Each episode features an interview with today's leaders in advertising technology. If you're working in ad tech and always wanted to sit down and pick the brains of today's experts, then this show is for you. Subscribe and join us each week as we meet a new ad tech hero. Hello and welcome to the Ad Tech Heroes podcast. In today's episode, we're going to talk about technology and I'm delighted to be joined by Melissa Blaha. Melissa is the head of product, data and analytics at Finecast. Previous to Finecast, she worked at companies such as Dentsu, Digitas and Razorfish. Hi, Melissa. How's it going? Hi, very well. Thank you. How are you? Very good. Thank you. Nice early start for a podcast, right? On a Friday. Absolutely. There was no Best time for it. There was no uh, Thursday night drinks or Media Thursday for you yesterday. Was there or, or were you working Sadly, from Sadly, no. Sadly, had to uh, be well behaved for this. Brilliant. Is that still happening? Are people still getting together and is Media Thursday still a thing? I'm so out of the loop nowadays. Um, I'm, I'm working from home mainly, so I don't really know. I think Media Thursday has shifted to maybe Media Tuesday and Wednesday, but it's. I think it's still alive and kicking. Amazing. It's just uh, any excuse to get together, right? I think we've had a couple of years Absolutely. of the opposite, so uh, any excuse, I think. Um, brilliant. So thanks thanks today for joining on our podcast episode. Super excited to talk about technology and all the different elements of it uh, and obviously your, your role as well. Um, so yeah, let's start there. So uh, let's start with your career. Tell me more about it. Sure. So I actually started in advertising in digital display. My first job right out of uni was working for a company called Razorfish in New York and serving banner ads which was great fun back then, really enjoyed it, great team and a lot of great clients. And after a few years in the New York media scene, I moved over to London to continue in digital display. I worked my way through a few companies here and then started to work in the product scene. So moved out of the display side and into digital product, So how could we make the products that we were selling to clients more attractive? How could we make them more um, commercially viable? Or how could we make them more exciting and and do some of the more innovative things that were going on in the industry? So after that, um, I kind of continued my career in product. So moved into some data product and on to Finecast, where I took my first step into addressable TV. And now I work in the product data and analytics team there, helping to make great and innovative addressable TV solutions that we could uh, give out to our clients. So it's a really exciting industry. I'm loving being in the TV world, and I think it's it's got so much excitement and potential, and who doesn't love a great TV program? Definitely, definitely. I'm, I'm, I definitely like a good TV program, mm-hmm. even a great TV advert. I think they're you know, they're, they're very impactful. Um, jumping, uh, kind of taking a step back, you know, was there a, a big shift when you moved from the US to the UK? Were the markets very similar? Um, you know, were your roles very similar? It'd be great to understand that that jump really for you and, and how that how that was. Absolutely. It, 
it is very, very different working in the two markets. And it, it took a lot of retraining, I'd say, retraining the way I think about my career, my role in digital media. In the States, budgets are a lot bigger. Um, mm -hmm. So the client expectations are a lot higher. And you have a, um, let's say, a, a more loose approach to what is acceptable than here. So the legislation was quite different. The ability to target and talk to people was quite different. And even the working culture was quite different. I I think you'd be shocked to know how shocked mm -hmm. I was about people drinking on media lunches when mm -hmm. I first got here. I was scandalized mm -hmm. by that. And uh, certainly now my opinion on that has very much changed after nearly 11 or 12 years here. But yes, in the beginning, that was a big shift. So the whole working culture is quite different. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, here I think that people do, people wear a lot more hats than they do in, in the New York media scene, or at least mm -hmm. when I was there. So there was a lot more of stretching into different roles, which was really great because I got to experience things that I probably wouldn't have if I had stayed in New York. Um, I got to try different aspects of roles. And ultimately, that's what led me into product, that ability to stretch outside of my day-to-day, -day, that ability to move in a direction that was perhaps not quite linear in my career. Mm. And I am very grateful for that. And is your background product related even before that? So in terms of education or expertise, uh, have you delved into product until now? No. So my first foray into product was when I was working in digital media. So my background, um, I went to uni and studied advertising and mm -hmm. psychology. So I, I definitely didn't have product in the in my mind when I first started my career. But I think it's just that natural curiosity of how can you make things better? How could this work more efficiently? How could this be more effective? And how can I how can I play a part in that that led me into product? Because I think that that curiosity and that drive is what makes someone a very successful product person. Definitely. Um, and what does your day to day look like now in product? Um, so it's it's a good mix because my role right now isn't isn't very um, exclusively product. So in the product sphere, it's all about how can we integrate new solutions, how can we make new things work for our clients. Um, but I also do a lot in the data side. Mm -hmm. So my team has data science in it, and we do a lot of forecasting and modeling and answering a lot of the tricky questions that sit at the heart of our business. And I get to also work with the product marketing team. So that's also very exciting because there's all of the collateral and how do we put this out in the best way possible to clients. So it's a really nice mix and it's a really nice balance in my day to day now. Amazing. Um, and in terms of fine cast, where you currently are, for those of those that are listening now don't know what fine cast do, it'd be great for you to explain. Absolutely. So Finecast is an addressable TV solution. And to some people who aren't that close to the industry, that might not mean very much. So addressable TV would be any TV that you're watching um, 
if you say, you know, four on demand or the all four app or ITVX um, through to the likes of Pluto, Roku, Rakuten. So if you're watching through a streaming connection, that would be addressable TV. And it's the ability for us to find audiences across that entire portfolio at Finecast. Uh, we wrap all that inventory together and then we're able to um, serve out your campaign to your audience across all of those different addressable touch points and wrap it in some great cohesive reporting and um, measurement studies off the back. So it's a really, it's a really innovative and interesting mm -hmm. space. It's constantly changing and it's got so much potential. It's such an exciting place to work. Yeah, and just talking about that change, how how has technology changed when it comes to addressable TV or, or just generally, you know, like you said, the early days you did work on display and digital media um, planning and, and buying side as well. So how has that changed over the years? Well, I'm, I'm definitely going to be dating myself in, in <laughs> this response. But when I joined the industry, I was working in digital display and that meant... I would print out a paper I own, I'd mail it or fax it over to a web a man at a website who would take my IO, print it out, sign it, fax or mail it back to me. And then I'd either send them the the banner to hard code into the site for the duration of the campaign, or I'd send them a one by one. And even that was very cutting edge, being able to serve the ad um, out of Atlas, if you remember Atlas all the way back in the day. Um, with the one by one. So programmatic media didn't start till after I was already in the industry. Mm -hmm. Nobody was serving programmatic ads. That wasn't even a thing on our radar. And then all of a sudden, Google launched AdSense and off we went. So it, I mean, the whole industry just changed in such a rapid um, time frame. It was actually really fun and exciting and amazing. I can still remember the VP of my company sitting down and saying, there's this new thing called programmatic media. I'm going to tell you guys all about it. Let's have, you know, let's have a lunch and learn and talk about what programmatic is. And, you know, our minds were blown. It was amazing. And the industry has just changed and grown and expanded so much. And I think one of the best outcomes from that is, you know, I used to spend my day just trying to get that campaign mm -hmm. set up and just trying to get the right people on the phone back when we had desk phones and make sure that I could get that ad out. And now you don't have to worry about that. All of that happens instantaneously in the background. And we've been able to move that conversation on as an industry we're now considered, we've kind of changed what our jobs mm -hmm. are so that you can think about audiences and measurement and proving value and the, and the strategy behind it and have some of those deeper conversations with clients that because the tech wasn't there in the early days, you just couldn't do. It was, it was like very, very close to planning print mm -hmm. where you just send the ad off, hope it, hope it ran and eventually get some numbers back. This was, I mean, now things are so different and it, I think it's all for the better. And the addressable TV landscape is, is very much like the digital landscape in 
that it's going through that transformation now. I would say not all of TV is sitting on a platform that enables this addressability today, but there is a lot of it there and there's so much uh, potential to start mirroring some of the good practice of digital in addressable TV. And it's been, it's been a good change. It's, it's moved the conversation on and it's allowed, you know, even smaller advertisers who previously wouldn't have had the budget to get into TV can tap into addressable TV because it's so much more accessible for them. So it's, it's a great time to be in the industry. And it's also, you know, the technology that sits behind it has enabled all of this. Definitely. And I just want to touch on what you mentioned at the start. Um, start there, and, I, and it's not a way I really have thought about before, but how technology has helped our day-to-day jobs in the industry, right? So, you know, I've been in the industry for about 12, 13 years as well, and it's you can clearly see the, see the difference. And, and now, fast forward to now, you can operate a business or speak to people anywhere in the world, right? Because you've got Zoom mm-hmm. or Hangouts or, you know, um, Teams where you can just have a, have a catch-up, do business, do work have a catch up um uh, and yeah you don't physically need to be in a lot of these locations so i think in that sense technology has been has been great in our day to days do you feel technology's taken anything away in terms of those one to one personal relationships you know you don't have to go into the office nowadays you can do everything from home um a lot of the business was done probably 10 years ago face to face rather than or even at least on a phone call, I, I can't see, I don't see anyone now j- jumping on a phone call, speaking to clients. Um, so you think, do you think in that sense, it, there are some elements that probably haven't been for the better? Um, I would say if you had asked me that question pre-pandemic or in mm-hmm. the early pandemic, I would have said absolutely. But I think that we've all adapted to the way that the world is now. And I think that we've all adapted to connecting to one another through technology. Mm -hmm. So it's about how we've built in these habits and behaviors. I do think that I was fortunate in my early career when I was just learning to be in an office environment where I would pick up on those conversations around me. And I learned so much. And even my move into product, I think if I hadn't been in the office, I probably wouldn't have moved into product because it was just something I heard was happening in another part of the business, but I would never have had cause to be near those people or seek them out um, had I not just happened to be sitting near them one day and overheard the kinds of projects that they work on and overheard the kinds of things that they're doing. So you know, those those spontaneous moments, I think, get lost a little bit when you have to diarize everything, diarize every interaction. But I think we're settling back into a, a better balance now because yeah. it's not all at home and it's not all in the office. And I think that that, particularly for people who have other responsibilities outside of the office, is is a great balance to be able to strike because you do want that interaction with your coworkers. You do want those moments of happy coincidence mm-hmm. where, you know, it for me it changed my career. But 
I also acknowledge that I've got other responsibilities too. And if I was in the office full time, I think my life would, would be very difficult. Mm-hmm. And technology has obviously facilitated that, right? So we can do Absolutely. the same jobs, the similar jobs at home versus the office. We have these um, platforms where we can network and talk to one another um, at, a, at a click of a finger, right? So uh, yeah, I, I think I agree. I think as um, overall, I think technology has definitely improved the way we're doing our day to day. And also from looking at the, the technology and the market perspective, for sure, we can see quite easily, right? We've got so many things, mm-hmm. uh, again, easily accessible to us. A lot, a lot of content at a click of a finger. You don't have to pay for it. It can be, you know, supported by ads. So yeah, there's there's been a ton of innovation there. Um, where where do you feel just on the topic of innovation? Where where do you feel there has been the best innovation? Are, are, are there any case studies or any examples where you've seen um, great success in our industry? So I think you know we touched on um, we touched a bit on the the kind of launch of this hybrid meeting, and I think that that has been a real game changer, and it's easier to get on clients' radars now. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that there's also, there's there's just a lot of, of kind of good stuff that's happening in the industry now that wouldn't have been possible before because we would have been mired down in the actual day-to-day mm-hmm. doing. Um, and I think that the innovation that I'm really excited about coming up is, is what all of this AI is going to bring and how that's going to change and accelerate and hopefully give us even a new job to think mm-hmm. about or a new um, a new change to all of our careers as that starts to accelerate and things like chat GPT start to to become more mainstream and more um, applicable to our day-to-day once we really figure out how to harness that in a way that is going to be successful for the whole industry I think we'll see another huge leap forward do you think AI will shake up the industry like programmatic did about 11, 12 years ago? Do you think it'll be on the same level? I think so. Um, I'm not sure that it will be our industry at the mm. forefront of the shakeup the way that it was in programmatic. But I think that there will be a lot of changes driven by that. Definitely. Um, when it comes to recruitment and technology, how, how easy has that been? So are you currently in your role interviewing people have you been doing that over the last couple of years it'd be great to understand that in a bit of detail yes so i think we so we're definitely um have done quite a bit of recruitment over the pandemic and since the pandemic and i think that it's it's clear that the pandemic has changed the way that we have to recruit the way we have to talk to candidates and even the way we find candidates. But because addressable TV is such an exciting and fast paced industry, I think it's just, it's a great place to work. It's very attractive to candidates Um, and tech is such an interesting field. So it, you know, we're, we're happy that the jobs can sometimes speak for themselves, but certainly recruitment has changed Tell me more about championing females in technology. I, I know for us, SeaTag, um, we're a, a Spanish Spanish company. We've got a HQ in in Madrid, uh, and we find it difficult uh, to hire uh, 
you know, great talent when it comes to product engineer, data analysts. Um, and, and, you know, it could be a locational thing. It could be um, a gender thing as well. You know, we try our best to, to, to hire as many females as possible. Um, how, how are you tackling that? And, and is that an issue for you? Yeah, I mean, I think that there is a lot that the tech sector can do to continue to champion female talent. And there, there's a few things, right? It, it is about the recruitment. How are we bringing people into the industry? How are we changing our recruitment strategies so that they're getting the best and most diverse group of individuals through the door? And that can be as simple as changing the length of the time that you have a job open for. So we had actually about three or four weeks ago in the office, we had a great um, panel on women in tech. And there was this really fascinating woman from Google who was there who was talking about the fact that women don't apply as early as men for jobs. So if you don't leave the recruitment window open long enough, you're missing out on a lot of female talent because their decision-making process is longer. Um, so it's, it's small things like that that can change uh, or things like the way that your job description is written mm -hmm. can have an impact on whether or not a woman feels comfortable to apply. So there's that stat that a woman applies for a job when she feels 100% qualified mm -hmm. and a man will apply if he feels 60% qualified. So if your job has a laundry list of very technical expertise and some of them are only nice to haves, that could be turning off some of the women, some of the uh, female talent from actually putting their hat in the ring when they would have mm -hmm. been an exceptional person for you to be speaking to as part of your process. So there's a lot of small practices that you can you can do during your recruitment strategy to start opening this yeah. up. And I think that this needs to become more commonplace in the tech industry. There's hybrid working. So the acknowledgement that still women who have children or families or other caring responsibilities need that flexibility because in a lot of instances, they will be the people who are doing a lot of that um, housework still. So how are you allowing for flexibility, allowing for hybrid working to continue to retain and bring those people into the industry? Um, and I think it's also about how us as an industry are behaving too. Mm -hmm. So what organizations are we championing? You know, there's some great charities out there that are doing excellent work. Um, we at Finecast, we partner with Believe, who help us to, um, who allow us to mentor women who are just starting out or just thinking about their first careers and help to show them what it could be like to work in tech, what it could be like to work in the TV space mm -hmm. and give them that positive association um, so they understand what a career could be like. Um, and I think that mentorship when you're early in your career, that female representation at the top and then the mentorship in your early career is is really key because there is still a gender imbalance in the industry. There is still a pay gap and we need to work really hard to close both of those. And I think nurturing early careers is is one of the, the key ways that we need to do that. 
Definitely. And, and I remember reading somewhere, um, the job description plays a big part. And even the job title, right? I, I know for sales mm -hmm. roles, having a, a sales within the, the, the job title puts off a lot of women. Whereas if it was uh, like an account director for a uh, kind of title doing the exact same thing, more people, more more females would be applying for that. So yeah, certain tweaks, mm -hmm. I think in job descriptions and titles can make all the difference. But then I suppose, again, what you mentioned was it's about the organization adapting for that need rather than thinking, okay, no, well, it's a blanket approach. We need to have this title just because it, it, it makes our admin a lot easier and, and kind of taking a step back and thinking, but what are we achieving here? And, and how do we resolve some of these issues that are, like you said, very obvious in our industry? Um, so yeah, hopefully organizations drive that change and slowly but surely that, that, will, that will definitely happen. Um, you mentioned, a, you know, there, there are organizations out there, charities out there that are helping. Uh, do you feel it all starts from that initial mentoring phase, that initial training phase, and then... Um, you mentioned like imposter syndrome and, and females do feel that, you know, they might not be qualified for something, whereas males just, just kind of jump in. Definitely agree with you there. I've, I've, I've seen that in our, in our industry. So do you think that's an education thing and a training thing um, early on in a career that, that we need to be looking at? Or is it ongoing? I, I think it's ongoing. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I feel imposter syndrome in mm. my own career and in in the opportunities that i i have to push myself to take even joining you today mm -hmm. i was i was feeling oh before i joined i had that nervousness yeah. am i qualified to speak on a podcast about ad tech having only had you know 12 13 years experience in ad tech <laughs> should i am i a reasonable voice to voice this so i don't think that it it ends an early career, I think it carries you through your entire career and being vocal about it. Um, so people like me who are lucky enough to be in leadership positions mm -hmm. in a business, being open about our experiences, being open about how we still struggle with things like imposter syndrome. Um, I think that that's very helpful because it shows that you can push through and you can still be successful and that it's not about, it's not necessarily something that should stop you from taking those opportunities, even if you do have that seed of doubt in your mind. Um, but I think it, it is, it's, a, it's the responsibility of the whole industry at every level mm -hmm. to be modeling this kind of good behavior, to be signposting resources for how we can get better trained and get better um, mentored and coached at every level of our career to make sure that people aren't leaving the industry too early um, or even mid-career that they're not exiting because they feel like they can't keep up with the demands or they can't keep up with the the kind of pace. So I think that it, it's important to to be championing this across the business. And it's, it really does. It starts from the top. So having that representation at the top of a business, making sure that you've got that equity and diversity up at the, the most senior levels of your business so that when you look up the chain of people who are above you, so if I look at my boss, then my boss's boss, then their boss, on and on and on, 
I'm not seeing the same profile of person and the same um, representation all the way through that there is that diversity through every line um, mm. because that's how you that's where you look you look up you look to what's next and you want that kind of representation there definitely you look up you look outwards as well right so you know we we're, we're, we're great in, as an industry we have tons of events whether they're face-to-face they're virtual um, and, and this is definitely a passion area for mine and, and, I, and I love to have a, have, have a moan about this now and again, but you, you see the same judges, you see the same people on the panels, you see mm-hmm. um, the same uh, look and feel when the question is asked, what do you think the year is going to bring? Everyone says the same thing. Um, it's something that you, you can look through the different episodes we've had on our podcast. There's a lot of people on there that haven't actually ever been on a podcast before or have ever been on a panel and uh, and that's like I said something that I'm passionate about is getting people to the front because they can do it and it shouldn't have to be the same faces we see with the same opinions day in day out so um, I think that needs to change for sure as an industry Mm -hmm. you know we've got tons of events coming up this year will we see the same speaker list most likely uh, what I do encourage is for the organizers bring in uh, people from different backgrounds and it doesn't always have to be C-suite right it doesn't have to be heads of I'd love to learn what a trader for a couple of years in programmatic has been learning versus someone that's probably never been into a, a DSP right and and this different perspective there's no right or wrong um, so I think yeah totally agree with you I think there needs to be change uh, top down but also outward as well yeah, that's a great point. And, you know, I think as long as it's done sensitively mm-hmm. and it's done for the right reasons, I'll never forget the first panel I was asked to join. They said, oh, you're a woman. Can you join this panel just because you're a woman? And immediately it made me feel like I didn't belong there because of my credentials. Mm-hmm. The only thing I was doing there was ticking a box. Yeah. And it didn't empower me to feel confident or feel like I could speak out because of because of the way that I was asked mm-hmm. and the the approach that the organizers took to recruiting me in. And so I'd say a word of caution if you're looking for diversity on your panel, make sure that you're not using that as an excuse to kind of subtly put someone down as you as you invite them in. Definitely. I think that just shouldn't happen. Don't worry, I won't I won't make you uh, <laughs> name and shame who they were. <laughs> Um, but I think it's it's more than just male, female, color of your skin. It a lot of it is like I said, the experience levels, your background. Some are university educated, some aren't, and I think that's where we need to really get the data behind the person, and mm-hmm. then realize, well, this is actually a diverse panel. It might look like a diverse panel, but are they all university educated? Been through the same path? Okay, they might look different but their thoughts and experiences is all, is all the same, right? So that's not different. Um, obviously, we've got CAN coming up in a couple of months. It'd be great to see some diverse panels there, and, and there usually is, right? There's a, a, a lot of different perspectives on show. Um, but, yeah, it's specific to our industry, I think, the events. Hopefully this year we, we start to see a, a little bit more of a shake-up. Mm-hmm. In, in, in terms of climate change, how has that impacted technological changes would you say you know it's a big topic has been for a couple of years now um yeah i'd love to get your thoughts on that 
Absolutely. Um, this is an area that I'm super passionate about. I work on the Group M Mission Zero team at Finecast, and our goal is to start to decarbonize the, the kind of future of ad tech. And at Finecast, I'd say we're really looking inwards first at how we can do this. And it may be something as simple as, is all of the data that you're not using every day archived appropriately? So it's not using up as much carbon as something that's sitting in active storage and being queried for no reason. Through to um, how are we going to put the climate crisis at the forefront of how we choose our tech and how we shape our tech strategy. I think as an industry, we're not quite there yet. There isn't one seamless way to measure the carbon output of a lot of this work that we're doing. But I don't think that that should stop people from asking the question, how could this be more carbon friendly? How could this be more climate friendly? Um, because we have to start somewhere and a small gain is still a gain. So I think we have a long, long way to go as platforms themselves grapple with what does it mean to be a carbon friendly bit of ad tech? And I think that the responsibility sits with the vendors to, to start to ask this question of themselves. And the responsibility sits with us as end users of the platform, as clients of the platform, to start interrogating this strategy and make sure that we're making really responsible choices because it is gonna impact us all. It is something that we need to start thinking about. And while there's no perfect solution today, some small, maybe imperfect steps are, are still steps forward. And are you asking those questions to your vendors? Are you, uh, are you starting to do that? And is that certain departments within Group M, for example, that are doing that more than others. How is that? How has that rollout been? So I know there is a, a wider initiative across Group M to start to work with the likes of Scope Three to to start to do some of this measurement mm. in the programmatic space. However, in in addressable TV, I'd say we're just a little bit behind. It's not quite there yet. So we are asking the questions and we're starting to think about what are the right questions to ask? How can we get some answers? But the industry has a long way to go. We're just at the beginning of this and, and it's, it's, gotta, it's gotta start somewhere. So that's why we're looking internal first. What can we change in our own tech stack to be more carbon friendly? What can we change in our own business practices? And it is, it is Earth Week. So also starting to think of how we can how we can champion some of the great work that some of our individuals are doing in their day to day lives to to be more climate friendly and to be more carbon neutral. Do you have any tips for vendors what they can do if anyone's listening that is is working for a, for a vendor that, you know, next week they can just start actioning um, or any organizations that they can talk to 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 get those hints and tips? I think that for a great place to start is to think about how can I measure my carbon output today? How can I quantify what I am doing that could be improved? Um, and thinking about, you know, having a strategy, starting those conversations can be really powerful in a business. 
acknowledging that we don't have all the answers. We don't have a perfect system, but there are, there's a lot of power in, in starting that conversation and in, in engaging with that conversation in your own organization. Amazing. Um, do you have any case studies or any examples where technology has benefited addressable TV and the brands that you've worked across? Absolutely. Um, so there's a great case study that actually is not just an addressable TV case study, mm -hmm. but Finecast sits as a part of a collection of services across Group M called Group M Nexus. And within Group M Nexus, there is a, an omni-channel solution called Unmissable. And we deployed this for Cancer Research UK. So what they were trying to do was relaunch their Race for Life campaign. And they wanted to make it really locally relevant. So how could they, um, how could they capitalize on the fact that they know that most of their participants live within 10 miles of where the races are happening? So it had to be a really local campaign. It had to be something that got a lot of attention. And that's where the unmissable solution came in. So what that does is it takes the addressable TV of Finecast and it brings in the programmatic arm of Saxis and then Sightline to do outdoor. And so between the, the um, video on demand, the digital audio, digital display and digital out of home, there was a, there's one way that we measure and optimize the whole campaign so that it is unmissable mm -hmm. to the audience that you're trying to reach. And so it actually achieved some really great results. So they had a six or six times uplift in signup intent and they had a 75% uplift in audience engagement and actually got 700,000 pounds in media efficiencies through running this. And I think the, the, the great thing about this is that tech is now enabling different channels to collaborate. Mm -hmm. Whereas before, if I said that my digital out of home campaign was talking to my digital display campaign mm -hmm. and my addressable TV campaign, what I would have meant is I was talking to someone on the phone yeah. and we were trying to do this through a collaboration, um, just using whatever resources we had and now tech pins that all together and allows us to make these kind of geolocation optimizations and give that coverage in a way that wasn't possible before. And I think all of us who took part in that campaign, all of the companies, and it was run through Essence Mediacom as well, you know, we're all really, really proud of this. And we think that it's a great, it's a great case study for the possibilities in technology when you're when you're joining together previously siloed approaches mm. at how powerful it can be, how efficient it can be, and you know how happy a client can be at the end. I think it's a great example of how technology um, instigates collaboration, right? So it's, mm -hmm. you know, this, I think is a perfect example. Um, when it comes to your predictions for this year, um, you've probably been asked this multiple times, but um, what are your yeah? What are your predictions for this year when it comes to ad tech and and TV in particular? Absolutely. So I think that we're gonna you know we're gonna hear a lot more about 
the AIs of the world. So chat GPT, BARD. And we're going to start to see a little bit more about how that can be applied through to our industry. So I was actually lucky enough to judge the Campaign Tech Awards, and I was blown away to mm. see that some people are already leveraging this tech to do really smart and innovative things. And, you know, after the, after the Campaign Tech Awards happen next month, I'd urge you guys to, to kind of go and check out mm. all the winners and see what was done there, because there is some really smart stuff that's starting to happen behind the scenes there. This is creeping into what we're doing already. And it's just the beginning. So I think that that is, you know, we're only in April. Yeah. Who knows what we'll be doing by December. And I think that that's really exciting. And I also think that when we're talking about addressable TV, one of the areas that technology is just starting to, to kind of come to, come to the forefront is on the creative side. Mm -hmm. So at Finecast, we're doing a lot in the, the dynamic creative space, in the kind of um, shoppable creative space on addressable TV, which is very commonplace in a lot of the digital display worlds and the social worlds, but hasn't had that cut through and that breakthrough across the whole addressable industry. So I think that that is going to continue to to kind of snowball this year as well. Definitely. I've spoken to various people in the industry and, and that always comes up now is, you know, the, the media with the tech and then influencing the creative. And rather than, you know, once the media plan goes out, the creative's already done, right? So in, and it has been in the past. So I definitely see that shift. And it goes back to the point of collaboration and technology. Technology is then bringing that creative agency probably closer to the publisher, closer to the media owner, the vendor, as well as the agency. And it's just a full circle, right? Absolutely. Um, we've got one final question for you. Um, if you had a superpower in ad tech, what would it be? Uh, well, after our conversation today, I definitely think a button or a technology that allowed me to cancel out like uh, imposter syndrome, mm -hmm. maybe like you would do with your noise canceling headphones to cancel that out would be really great, really useful. Amazing answer. It's probably my best yet, my favorite yet, I think. <laughs> um, it's super relevant, right? Um, okay, I think that's all we've got time for in today's episode. Thank you, Melissa, for your time. All right. Thanks, Dal. Thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoyed this episode of Ad Tech Heroes. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a five-star review. To see all the show notes and resources mentioned in this episode, head over to adtechheroespodcast.com. This episode is brought to you by SeedTag, the world's leading contextual advertising company. Contextual intelligence allows you to engage with consumers within their universe of interest on a cookie-free basis. By delivering ads into content, we capture users' attention faster and retain it longer. Learn more and reach out to us at SeedTag.com.